This is That's So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. episode, we bring you Deacon Harold. Deacon Harold Burke Sippers is an internationally renowned speaker. He's an author, and he's a preacher. He has a BA from Notre Dame in Economics and Business Administration, and a Master of Theological Studies from the University of Dallas. He's appeared as a guest on numerous international Catholic radio and television programs. He's a favorite down in Australia. He's the host or co-host of several popular series on EWTN. He's a Benedictine Oblate. And he's also written the best-selling book, Hold the Man, A Catholic Vision of Spirituality. And he's written the work, Father Augustus Tolton, The Slave Who Became the First African-American Priest. He's a member of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars and the Confraternity of Catholic Clergy. He's a very energetic speaker and a lot of fun to interview. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Deacon Harold. We're very happy to have uh, Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Um, uh, really one of the uh, most uh, uplifting and insightful and informative and uh, kind of uh, motivating forces in the world of Catholic evangelization and preaching today. Uh, I've uh, been, had the privilege of being in the audience a few times for Deacon Harold and uh, then also very much uh, following his EWTN programs. He, he appears on EWTN TV and radio frequently. So welcome, welcome to our microphones, <laughs> such as they are, Deacon Harold. Well, thank you, Bill and Paul. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, yes. I know it's, it's a great privilege to get to talk to you, Deacon. We know that you went to Notre Dame and uh, we have a Notre Dame connection ourselves. You know, how is it that you wound up? Are, are you from the Portland area? How did you wind up going to Notre Dame? Uh, yeah, so I am. Uh, I was born in Barbados in the West Indies, okay. and we immigrated to the United States when I was almost when I was almost three years old. And uh, I'm actually the first baptized Catholic in my family. Um, my mom is the first Catholic. She became uh, she was Methodist, became Catholic when she was a teenager, and I'm the oldest child uh, of her marriage with my dad. So uh, I'm the first baptized as Catholic. But oh, three weeks or so after I was born. Uh, we immigrated to the United States. You know, my we grew up in a Catholic parish and um, I went to Catholic schools my whole life. So when I was a senior in high school, the choice basically came down to like Columbia uh, or Notre Dame. And I'd grown up in the New York area, um, you know, uh, and plus I was Catholic. That was that my Catholic identity was important to me. And so uh, made the decision to go to Notre Dame. And uh, had a, a wonderful four years there. You grew up in the New York area, you say, Deacon Harold? Yeah, I grew um, up in yeah. uh, in Hillside, New Jersey, which is Hillside, right Jersey. next to Newark. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up uh, in, well, right near the what they call the Weak Wake section of of Newark. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, the little uh, like blue collar, um, working class community, a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, and uh, so we had to go to the other side of town to go to the, the, the Mass of the Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, back then, all I remember about uh, Notre Dame is 
really not knowing knowing much about it uh, coming from the uh, East Coast and from Long Island uh, myself. Uh, I really had not heard too much about Notre Dame or the uh, Holy Cross congregation or those folks. Uh, yeah, how I got interested was my, my physics teacher uh, in high school is actually a Notre Dame grad. Ah. Uh, he's a, a monk, a Benedictine monk uh, at uh-huh. the Abbey there. And he um, wanted to take some of the um, uh, students of color who he felt were talented enough to attend Notre Dame. And he actually drove us out there. You know, wow. So we drove and we stayed at his grandparents' house in Cleveland, uh, kind of ha- for halfway there. And then we drove the rest of the way. We spent a few days there touring around, um, visiting the school, talking to teachers and stuff, professors, and um, then came back. And uh, and when I was accepted, that's why I decided to go. You know, so, wow. uh, yeah, so, like I said, it was a great four years. I have lifetime friends. The guys have been in my wedding and I've been in their weddings and we still you know, all these years later are still very close and stay in touch. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Notre Dame, I guess today has its struggles, you know, some people say, well, what about this going on? And what about that? And, you know, sometimes it's true. Let's be real. I'm, uh, um, I think sometimes, uh, you know, they focus too much on their new U S news and world report ranking, right. Then, then their Catholic identity and in, in the public face of the university, but on campus, there's a lot of great things going on. You know, the D. Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture is phenomenal. The law school is solid. The Liturgical Institute is good. There's some uh, phenomenal professors there on campus. And yes. So, yeah, so there's still some very, very good things going on. I just wish they would have that persona more publicly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, the whole world of higher ed today is just so uh, confused and confounded by uh uh, frankly, I think a lot of marketing concerns, right? And just uh, capturing the essence of the new generation as it comes up, which especially for Catholic colleges is confusing because uh, there's so many nuns, N-O-N-E-S, out there. I don't know if Catholic colleges and universities really know how to reach that audience while also evangelizing to non-Catholics and uh, very active Catholics, uh, uh, and well, that, the, that's, and a, the, right? that's a good point. That, that's a very good point. Um, and, and what I'm finding is I'm traveling around. Um, you know, thank goodness I'm starting to travel again. You know, during COVID, I was home for a year. Yeah. You know, and yeah. as a professional speaker, you yeah. know, uh, that's, that, that's where your bread and butter is, right? Traveling around. So, so I'm starting to do that again uh, since the end of August uh, of last year. And so, when I talk to young people, I'm finding it's very much a different trend than when than when we were that age. You know, when, when I was in high school, uh, graduated in 84 from high school, um, the, everybody went to college. That was kind of like the track that you went on. Unless, yeah. you know, like if, you know, quote, unquote, you weren't smart enough, then you were like an auto mechanic or something like that. Um, but now it's a whole different ballgame. we got so many young people who are opting not to go to college for a couple of reasons. One, college and universities today are teaching kids Ha, uh, what to think, not how to think. Wow, you are right. You know, so yeah. uh, that's a problem. Second, it's crazy expensive. I mean, you almost have to mortgage a house to send the kids to four years of college uh, now. You know, so a lot of kids are opting to go to uh, community college first, figure out what it is they want to do, and then and just do two years at a university after that. You know, um, a lot of uh, young people now, because with all the technological advances, are 
opting for careers that are more technical, that don't require a college degree. So it's a very, or, or, or they're taping, taking gap years. You know, they're, they're taking their, a year off of uh, high school before they, because they're, they're not sure what they want to do. So they're doing volunteer work, you know, uh, or they're just t- doing a, taking a job or something until they figure it out. And, and that's a very different dynamic than, um, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and can you combine that with what you mentioned, Bill, about the nuns, right? So you, you hear Bishop Barron, you know, when he presented at the U.S. Bishops Conference a couple of years ago, talked about the really, uh, really startling statistics. Uh, the, the one that stuck out to me with regard to young people is that the age where a young person makes the conscious decision, I am no longer Catholic, is 13 years old. Oh, my goodness. I, I said, what? What? I mean, when they make the decision, I mean, it's just, so think about this. They've already left the faith before they left their parents' house. You know, intellectually, they, they're gone. And, and so what do we do? We, we, we send them to youth group and we fill them with pizza and soda and, and they never learn who Jesus is. That's, and that's why they're leaving. They don't know Jesus. They know stuff about Jesus, but they don't know him deeply, personally and intimately. And without that connection, they're going to they're going to leave. Wow, that's a very good point. Yes, yeah. They learn about religion as strictly a kind of the, the human institution side of the church. They might learn uh, through confirmation classes or something like that. Uh, but then the, there's nothing deeper for them to pursue, namely a relationship with Christ, uh, after confirmation. So they start thinking about leaving at that point, huh? Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the problem is a couple of things. You have teachers teaching in Catholic schools who aren't living the Catholic faith. Right. So, so they're not getting that personal witness uh, in the classroom of how, to, of how the Catholic faith is supposed to be lived out. So the other thing is parents. Parents aren't passing on the faith to their children because they don't know the faith themselves. Right. They don't, they don't know right. the, like, right. literally don't know the faith. They don't know. They, they can't tell you, you know, what a, they can't define what a sacrament is. They can't name five of the Ten Commandments. They're not praying at home. So the kids are learning stuff at school. Then they come home, you know, so they get that, that head at school and the heart at home. And they're not getting that. And so it just becomes an intellectual exercise. And, and, and the way the culture is portraying the faith, it's a bunch of rules and commandments and moral codes about what you can't do. It's restricting your freedom. You know, it's not allowing you to to express yeah. yourself and all this garbage. And the kids are buying it because they're not getting countercultural signs. And so if the Catholic school is not teaching Catholic faith, send them to public school. Don't waste your money. Yeah. You know, we have to support Catholic schools. We should only support Catholic schools if they're teaching the Catholic faith. Right. Period. Or, or you're just paying for a very expensive public school. That's all you're doing. And that's, that's too much money right. in this day and age. Um, if you're going to make an investment, you want a, a return on your investment. And return on our investment is getting our kids to Absolutely. heaven. And, and, and yeah. if that's not happening, then, then don't do it. Don't waste your time. What good point. Yeah. 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 Paul, you want to? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a central thrust of you know, this idea that all religion is about is, is restricting your freedom. Um, and we have no idea why we would submit to this restriction of freedom if we don't know who Jesus is, if we don't know what the, what 
what the good of it is. I mean, you know, my life, you know, being you know, another, you know, coming of age in the nineties and, you know, graduating high school in 97. I mean, I really, I really feel like, yeah, I had whatever I knew about Jesus I'd found on my own. I did find out from my parents, but I didn't find out from Catholic school. Um, it gave me a few opportunities of things that I could chase down. But what do we, you know, how do, how do we put that positive back in? Where, where did it go? Uh, okay, th- think, of, think about it like this. Think about it like this. We had the Summer Olympics uh, this summer of last year, and now we got the Winter Olympics coming up. Okay? Now, you think about those athletes. They are striving for greatness. These are the best athletes in the world competing on the biggest stage in the world, the Olympics. That's the goal that every athlete wants to get to. They want to get to the Olympics. And so in order to get there, they have to sacrifice. For example, I mean, what coach would say like, uh, uh, I don't know, pick a winter sport, um, uh, uh, bobsledding or skiing or whatever, right? You know, you want to, your coach will say, you want to be great? Yes. You want to be the best in the world? Yes. Well, then just come to practice whenever you want. <laughs> uh, eat eat whatever you want. Uh, and if you're having a little bit of pain, don't worry about it. Just sleep it off. You know, if, you, if, if you're on your way, you get halfway here, you realize, ah, uh, you know, I don't feel like doing it. Just turn around and go home. Just take care of yourself. You know, no coach would ever do that. Because that's not how you get great. What do they have to do? They have to sacrifice. They have to get up early in the morning. You know, uh, uh, sometimes they have to do two practices a day. They have to sacrifice being with their friends and going to parties. And you know, uh, sometimes they have to sacrifice even school because a lot of these uh, elite athletes are tutored. You know, they're, they're not missing school, but they're just not with with all their friends. They sacrifice that for years. Yeah. Why? So they can wear a piece of gold around their neck. Yeah. You make that same analogy for us, for our young people today. What, you know, what's the goal? Heaven, deep, intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving relationship with God. That's the goal. How do you get there? What's the culture say? More relativism. Ah, just do whatever you want. That may be true for you. That's not true for me. Oh, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. That's just like the coach that's you know that 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 says you want to be great but doesn't do anything to get you there. That's the culture today. What we have to do with the church offers the church is the coach. The church is the one that's saying no. If you want to be great, you must sacrifice. So just like you have to give up, you know, you have to eat a certain diet and get up early. That that's called virtue. Virtue. It's right. actually by aligning yourself with an objective set of principles that actually free you to become the person who God created you to be. So by following the rules and by uh, uh, learning the techniques of skiing or bobsledding or or gymnastics, whatever the sport is, or a musician, you have a constant musician, you have to learn piano, learn guitar, have to learn all the rules, is when they know the rules, now they're able to, to, to freely express themselves through the instrument. So it's the rules and commandments of the church that don't enslave us like the culture wants to convince you. They're, they actually free us by aligning ourselves with those objective truths, those beautiful principles, right? The transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. We actually, it actually free us to become 
who God created us to be. Now we can become creative. Now we can become expressive. Now we realize that there's a reality there that's just beyond the God of me, myself, and I that the culture worships. You know, it's being drawn into this deep, intimate truth um, that allows allows us to fully express who we are in God. That That's the goal. And it's not a gold uh, piece of gold you wear around your neck. It's being with God forever in heaven. That's great. Yeah. You're making me think uh, in the uh, current the political uh, jargon, uh, the the uh, important term is not virtue, but virtue signaling, because uh, maybe uh, people who really know the virtues are are free to create and to love each other and show compassion and all of that, while virtue signaling seems to be part of an ethos where the only way you can feel good about yourself is to put down others and to uh, to hold one banner high, perhaps as a cause, but not to really see the big picture, which is which would be Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Right? I, well, it's, it's not about it's it's about living on the surface as virtue signaling, right? So, so for example, um, and there's different ways to virtue signal. For example, I travel all the time, so now on the planes you still have to wear masks, right? And so I usually wear either a, a plain black mask or I wear oh, yeah. a Notre Dame mask, right? Where my Notre Dame mask is not virtual signal, it's school pride, right? But if you see someone with a rainbow mask, the LBGT mask on, or if you say someone that says, you know, Black Lives Matter, whatever, mm-hmm. that's virtue signaling. Yeah. <laughs> they know, that's saying, here I here's my here's where I stand. Right. But it doesn't say anything about the person you are on the inside. And we said the same thing, uh, Bill and Paul, with what? Tattooing. You got Ooh. all these people that cover their body. I mean, you can't even see. What color their skin is not because it's so covered with tattoos, you know. Again, virtue signaling. It's they're focusing on the external and, and not working on that, that internal. And also with the piercing, right? They pierce their eyes, they pierce their lips, their tongues, they you know, you can see these implants are putting like bumps in their heads and things like that. Again, the virtue signaling, they're focusing on the external and not doing that deep internal work. And we have to remember why is that important? We're pilgrims on this earth. This is not the last stop. We're here in order to get there, to heaven. That's the goal. And so everything that happens in our life strengthens us and nurtures us on that journey and on that road to eternal life. But what's happened is that some people have uh, on that journey, they've gotten, you know, they, they spent a little bit too much time at the restaurant, right? They, they're, they're, they're getting waylaid along the way and getting stuck and not completing that journey. Um, and, and it's a, a turn back toward the self, which is the lie of the devil in the garden. You will be like God. You don't need God. You're your own God. Right? That's exactly where, and that's what virtue signaling and, and, and deplatforming and uh, and canceling and and being woke, all that garbage that that the culture spewing out at our young people and they're and they're lapping it up why we're not giving them a countercultural message of truth and that's what i hear from young people all the time when i talk to young people they tell me constantly we want to hear the truth and we're not hearing it all the time let, 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 let me give let me give you a real life example the last time uh, i've been to australia on tour 6 times 
since 2012. Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful country. So I was the last time I was there was to, in 2019. I was giving a, an archdiocesan talk to a, about 700 middle school students. And during that talk, I told the middle school students that you have no idea how much God loves you. Right? They have no idea how much God loves you. So I got off the stage and there was a young priest at the bottom of the stairs. He said, Deacon, let me drive home the point that you just made. He said, um, uh, when I was, I've been o- only been ordained for three years. And when I was first ordained, they put me in the Catholic high school. Why? Because I'm young, just ordained. They might get some vocations out of this, right? So he was teaching religion class and he wrote on the board as an experiment one day, I believe in God. And on the other side of the board, I don't believe in God. And asked the students to stand under the statement that best represented their position. So about 99% of the kids stood up under the statement, I believe in God. And a few of the atheist kids or kids are just there for education stood under, I don't believe in God. Then he erased it and they sat down. Then he wrote, God loves me. God doesn't love me. And asked the students to do the same thing, stand under the statement that best represented their position. He said, none of the students stood under the statement that God loves me. Not one. Oh my goodness. He said, a handful of students stood under the statement that said, God uh, I, I, God doesn't love me, but most of them just sat there at their desks because they weren't sure. Yeah. See, see, so, so what's the problem here? They believe in God, but they don't believe God. That's what it comes down to. They believe in God, but they don't believe God. And, and, and when we start to make those connections, then they'll be on fire and then they'll be in love with their faith. But for all the reasons that we've already talked about, there's some significant challenges. And what we have to counter, uh, the, the message that they're getting from the culture is truth. And, 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 that, and that's what we're afraid to do. We're afraid to talk about you know, transgenderism. We're afraid to talk about being woke. We're afraid to talk about what Black Lives Matter actually really is all about. And we're afraid to talk about that in schools because we're afraid of offending people. It's all about the truth, right? And Jesus, the truth will set you free. Set you free to do what? To be the person who God created you to be. And so what do they do? They bring me in. So I go into the schools now, not in my own diocese, but that's another story. Uh, but, But schools literally around the world, and I talk to these kids, and I give them truth, you know? So. Yeah, no, they want the truth. That's right. And they, they are desperate for, uh, communicating, uh, hearing communication and messages about uh, truth, and they don't know any authoritative institution, or they think they don't know any authoritative institutions or persons that they can turn to for truth. And they seem to have given up on the church just as they've given up on other institutions. And, uh, and Perhaps they've given up on the family, which is so core to it all, because they they grew up themselves in a a flawed, perhaps dysfunctional family. Yeah, but so did I, Bill. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I had. I mean, my parents were divorced. You know, they did not have a good marriage at all. My father had multiple, multiple affairs, um, uh, and he wasn't really there with us at the at the kind of the core moments of our life. But but that those are and, and those are excuses. You know, I mean, I think I turned out okay. Why? Because I focused at, at, my, at my heart in the center of my life on, on, on uh, in deepening intimacy with Jesus Christ, walking along with the Lord. You know, um, 
and so you even have some. Look what's happening. What else is happening? There are parents who are doing everything right. Right, they send them to the right schools, and they pray with their kids, and they go to mass every Sunday, and they, you know, they they're not just they're not just um going through the motions. They're actually trying by their own witness and example as parents to teach the children the faith, and the kids still leave. They you know how many how many heartbroken grandmothers that come to me and say, "I don't know what happened to my son. He went to Catholic school, and he got confirmed, and he went to mass every Sunday, and now he doesn't go to mass. None of my grandkids are baptized, and I I don't know what to do, you know. And it, we've done everything right because ultimately, what it comes down to, that person has to make a decision. Yes. I accept it or no. So we have to, what, what our job is, teachers, parents, teachers, educators, priests, religious, our job is to help lay a foundation in that young person's life upon which the, their life will stand strong with God, right? Psalm 127, one of the, the two Psalms written by Solomon, um, it, it says, if the Lord does not build the house, in vain do the builders labor. So our job is not to build the house of our children's lives for them, they have to build the house of their lives with God. Our job is to lay a strong foundation upon which they will build the house of their lives with God. That, that's our job. And the stronger the foundation, the sturdier their relationship with God is going to be into their adult years. And that's what's missing. We're, they're missing that piece, uh, th that foundational uh, faith. That's why the house of their lives aren't strong. And Jesus warned us. You're going to get washed away by moral relativism. Your house is going to be knocked down by the, the winds and the storms of sexual immorality in our culture today. And that's exactly what's happening. It's only sometimes when they become older and they realize, wait a minute, you know, now that I'm older and wiser, now that I, I kind of get it now, you know, that's maybe when the light starts to turn on. But the more we can give them early, again, the truth in love, it's not just the truth, it's the truth in love, right? Ephesians 4.15. So we're not just, you know, um, giving the truth to the detriment of other people around them. Amen. No, we're, we're trying to open their hearts to to love others more deeply, right? Because we're, we're we're loving them with the, with the love of God, and and that dynamic is what's missing in our young people today. And we can only do so much because it ultimately has to become with their faith and their acceptance of the grace that God is so lovingly and, and willingly wanting to give them. Mm, very good point. That's right. Yep. That's what's lacking. Paul? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I mean, I think of that example of the person that you gave, you know, people want to, yeah, I mean, they want to force an outcome when it's partly, it's going to be someone that's someone else's choice ultimately. Um, that's part of it. But then there's also, I don't know, a willingness to do, actually necessary for the other person and meet them where they actually are as opposed to you know kind of sitting and saying well i did the right things and therefore god owes me the right outcome for this person to do what i want them to do yeah the, the way to win over somebody's uh, heart and uh true uh, allegiance or alliance is not by condemning them and and demonizing them and uh, love seems to be completely excluded from much of our public discourse uh, people well, or, or, or love has turned into a virtue signal, right? Ah. Love wins. It's, it's turned into a marketing slogan. Oh, sure has. But right. what love is really about, you have to look at a crucifix, right? Love is self-gift. 
Love is breaking open and pouring yourself out. You look at Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I want to know nothing, Paul says, except the cross of Jesus Christ. It's that breaking yourself open and pouring yourself out in love for the other, not for yourself, for the other in love. And, and what it is in this covenant love, there's an exchange of love and life and intimacy and communion, right? So between God and his people, between a husband and a wife, right? Between a, a, a priest and the church, right? I mean, that that those are the relationships um, at, at opposite at different um, ontological levels, right? Um, wh where God is really calling us to intimacy with him. So no matter what state in life you're in, and yes, we're all broken, right? We're all sinful. We all have stuff that we're dealing with, every single one of us. Um, but that, but that shouldn't, but sometimes we get stuck there, right? Sometimes we get, we get comfortable being angry. We get comfortable being resentful. We get comfortable in our sin. Yeah. Right. Cause, yeah. And, and so when someone comes along with a countercultural message, you know, ah, all of a sudden it hurts yeah. right? because now you, yes. yet the soul is saying, oh, that's so beautiful. Turn back, turn back. And, and your intellect is saying, no, I, you know, and, and what do you ha what happens? You yell at the person. It's your fault for making me feel this way. <laughs> you see, and yeah. they're not realizing right. there's an internal struggle that the soul wants to turn back toward its ultimate end and purpose, which is God. Uh, it's almost like the uh, the public square is also uh, working in different strategies to make hating the other person or blaming the other person easier uh, to the point where now, while there's a there's a lot of reason to uh, to be concerned about things like uh, the real presence of racism and, and other things in our in our world, uh, uh, sometimes it seems as though uh, labels like racist or supremacist or extremist, they're just being dished out there to make it easier to deny other people our love, uh, to, to just make them feel very guilty or very uh, ashamed or keep them silent and to show no compassion. Um, it, it, it does seem like the, there are a lot of things that are working against uh, the church being a voice and presence for love. Um, uh, it, I guess my last question would be um, now with 2022 coming in and it's seeming, seeming like, uh, you know, uh, the stage is being set for perhaps even more polarization and more of this uh, demonization and people will feel more nervous and anxious uh, uh, and uh, at each other's throats, perhaps on issues like abortion and, um, and politics uh, is there is there a next step that the church can take to kind of uh, step up its presence as a voice for for love and as a route to relationship with the Lord? Uh, yeah, so uh, I think the the church the church really has to insert herself um, as the voice of truth, as the rational, objective voice of truth. So, for example, um, you said let's go back to your example, Bill. Uh, about racism. Everything is not racist because we're not making a distinction between prejudice and racism, right? right. So prejudice is making uh, a subjective um, assumption about some, something or someone not based on any observable data or, or any, not, or any uh, objective knowledge, right? And, and racism is that, is prejudice with the added piece that the reason I believe this is because my race is superior to your race. 
That's racism. So, uh, for example, at a parish mission not too long ago, uh, a guy came up to me and said, oh, you went to Notre Dame. What position did you play? Now, he said that, and I can see the calculus in his mind, right? Big black guy plus Notre Dame equals football, yeah. right? But that was that a racist statement? No, it was not, because he did not say that with the intent of meaning, wow, the only way a black person can get to Notre Dame is by playing football. You certainly aren't smart enough to get in on the academics, guys. I mean, that's not, see, that would have been racist. That's not what he, he just thought, oh, look at the size of you went to Notre Dame, you must have played football. He just made an assumption. Was it prejudice? Yes. Was it stupid? Yes. Was it racist? No. Right? Because when he found out <laughs> that I actually got an academic scholarship to Notre Dame, then he was embarrassed. Oh, oh, so I just, you know, oh, that kind of, in fact, I never played football in my life. You know, so, so um, and I wrestled in high school. My high school didn't even have football. Yeah. So it's that it's that kind of thing. And what the church needs to do is be the voice of reason, the, 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 the be the voice of virtue, right? And, and and focus on the things that are important. I think now I'm, I'm not necessarily saying this to be critical, but you know the emphasis right now on the church, at least in America, seems to be on migrants and immigrants and you know the environment. Not saying those things aren't important because they are, but young people aren't leaving the church over those issues. They're right. leaving the church because they don't know who Jesus is. Yeah. They don't know what difference Jesus makes in their life. That's where emphasis needs to be. And it's not there right now. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I think that's I, the same is true in the universal church. The emphasis is not being placed. My Again, my opinion is that the emphasis is not being placed. Uh, it's not in the right place right now in the church. We're, I think we're not emphasizing the things that are drawing people to deeper intimacy with the Lord. We're focusing on on mm-hmm. things that that people won't get mad at us about, and, and I and right. I think that's a mistake. Absolutely. If we understand who Jesus is, we'll make the right decisions about these other issues. Exactly. Exactly. So we're going backwards. We're trying. We're, we're trying to, to work on these issues. It's like it's like trying to to wash and polish your car when the car's not running. I mean, why? you can't drive the car, so then why wash it and po- you, you, wash it, you can't do anything with yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, th- that's, that's kind of right. what what I see. Again, my opinion. Uh, I'm not trying to be critical or criticize anybody. I'm just saying I- I'm looking at this objectively, trying to say, you know, because uh, I mean, every young person I talk to never mentions to me the environment, migrants, immigrants as 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 things they're concerned about. Uh, things whether leaving the church about things that they're upset about, they want to know why the church is discriminating against two men who want to get so-called married. They, they right. want to know why, if a girl wants to become a guy, why that's a problem in the church. They want to know why they can't masturbate and look at porn. That's what that's what they're saying to me, and that's why we're not we're not focusing on that, you know. Uh, and, and so we need to yeah. go back to, uh, to 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 the basics, you know, the sacraments cooperating with the grace. What what power does sacrament have in our lives? Yeah, I got baptized as a baby. What power does sacraments have in my life right now? H- how do I uh, take the graces that God has given me to live counterculture, to live against the push of the culture to, toward socialism or toward Marxism or toward, um, you know, this rugged individualism where I am the center of all meaning and existence? You know, how do we counter that? And that's where our focus needs to be today. And we learned some of that. We learned so much of that example of the saints. Yes. I mean, these saints would rather die 
than deny Jesus. You may look at look at some of the contemporary. Well, they're not like a blessed Carlo Acutis, right? He's a little Italian kid, 15 years old, who uh, is in love with Christ in the Eucharist. So he starts a website where he's telling people about Eucharistic miracles. You know, his life was completely transformed. Yeah. Or uh, the, the the young um, uh, kid in Mexico, right during the uh, the yeah. Mexican persecution of the church. Who was killed rather than deny than deny Jesus? I mean, come on! I mean, and you look at the scriptures. You know, Samuel, right? Samuel, whose name in Hebrew means "hear the word of God," uh, was a teenager when God came there. The Blessed Virgin Mary was a teenager when when, when God used her. Uh, David, right? David and Goliath. David was a teenager when when God called him. So God does amazing things with young people in the scriptures. You know, because did God say, oh, let's just back up? No, they were met with significant challenges and they were young, you know, um, and, and, and God's grace. They trusted in the power of God's grace. And that's what got them through. And that's what we need to do for our young people today. And by the way, uh, Father Augustus Tolton, about whom you've written, also yeah. was a kind of model for not just being swerved by the uh, you know the activities of of the human side of the institution of the church, but really zeroing in on the grace that was available through the church uh, from from God, uh, and that was what was the center of his loyalty to the church. Yeah, absolutely. Because he, you know, people we hear his story. He's the first um, uh, uh, black Catholic to become a priest in the United States. Um, and and I mean, he was born in 1854 in Brush Creek, Missouri. Born a slave, and died in 1897 in Chicago. Uh, so he's only 43 years old. Uh, and and it was and he was rejected from every single seminary in the United States because he was black. Um, I mean, discrimination, incident after incident, all throughout his life. So then people will say, well, why, why did he stay in the Catholic Church? Why? I mean, if he would have left, nobody would have blamed him. You know, who would have put up with that? No. That's a great yeah. question. But what? But Augustus told the answers answer that question himself in his own writings. You know, uh, at the at the uh, very first National Black Catholic Congress in Baltimore, um, that was organized by Daniel Rudd. He, that's one of the few places that we actually have a, actually a speech or a homily that's actually written out by Tolkien because he almost written, never wrote anything down. Um, but he says in there uh, that is, he's is focusing on what the church teaches, right? The, the true and the good and the beautiful of what the church teaches, not the people in the church who are all sinners in need of God's mercy. You know, so, so, for example, they'll say, I left the church because of that priest, but let's say that kid. Okay, what about the other 98% of the priests who, who are actually fathers of, of our parish families, who are actually living the sacrificial mission of Christ, who are actually standing in persona Christian? What about the that? You want to focus on the 2%. You don't leave Jesus because of Judas, <laughs> okay? That's, that's not how it works. And so, um, you know, uh, so that's what Tolton figured out. So he focused on the teaching, not the people. He was true to the teaching, and he tried to live that out in the way that he served served his people. You know, he right. really saw himself as a spiritual father, and that these were his. He, the church was his bride, and and the people in the church were his children. Yeah, you know, and he and he worked diligently to make the love of God known 
uh, in the hearts of every person he encountered. Mm. Yeah, that's a, another good way of uh, saying what the church has to do today in in our current situation, huh? Yes, absolutely. You know, and how I found out about him was actually by accident. Uh, back when I was in, uh, in in seventh grade, that's when I did confirmations. Uh, I grew up in the Archdiocese of Newark, and that's when I did when I was a kid. That's when I did confirmations, and so they were talking about all these amazing saints. You know, Saint Francis of Assisi, um, you know, Saint uh, G- G- Gerard. You know, uh, all these amazing saints, and I'm like, wow, I'd love to find a saint that looks like me. You know, so so I went to the library. You know, again, for some of you younger listeners, a library is a place where they have books, and you and you had to go back to the card catalog. There was no computers back then, so you had to go through the card. And I and I was looking in a section on on you know black Catholics, and I accidentally came across the uh, from slave to priest, which by Sister Carolyn Hemesath, which is the biography of Tolton. And I and I said, oh, who's this? So I pulled the book out, started looking through it. I obviously couldn't use his name because he wasn't a saint. Um, but I, I was intrigued. I'm like, I've never heard this guy before. So I, I remember looking at it. I put the book back and kept on my mission of finding, you know, a book about black saints or something. And but but that planted a seed. That planted a seed in my mm-hmm. mind. And so uh, fast forward to 2000, like 2000, you know, about right about 2000, 2002. Ignatius Press buys the rights of the book, which is since long out of print, Sister Carolyn Hemesat's book, and reprints it from Slave to Priest under Ignatius Press. And they asked me to write the new forward to the new edition of the book, which I was happy to do. And so that reintroduced me to Talton again. So in thinking about his life, so my book is not a biography. The first chapter is a summary. So in case people aren't familiar with who he is, the first chapter summarizes his life. But the rest of the book is about um, how the how Tolton's spirituality can really um, how relevant his thinking and his spirituality is to our life today. So I talk about how we can use his his thinking to help overcome racism, build strong families, to promote vocations, right, to finding joy in God's mercy, uh, to overcoming hardships, praying with confidence. How do we do all those things? Looking at it through the lens of the life. Of Father Augustus Tolton, who is now servant of God, you know, so he's uh, uh, just needs a miracle to become blessed, and of course, a second miracle to become a saint. So uh, let, let's let's pray for that. But I think his witness example, especially today with everything going on in, in the country over issues of race, right. I think you know, I think he shows us that the Catholic Church can actually be a leader in this area of actually facilitating communion, of bringing people together, not just about race. But about all the issues that divide us, I think the church can. This is an opportunity for the church to step in, because often we've been re, a reactive church, right? So, for example, with this whole thing with marriage was an issue, we said very little, and when the Supreme Court supposedly, you know, the Obergefell decision supposedly redefined marriage, which they didn't do because you can't redefine what God has defined, but they right. attempted to, right? There, what do we issue? There was a bunch of statements that came out. It's too late. It's too late then. We need to be proactive. We need to get in front of these issues. And I think the issue of race is one where the church can get in front of and actually lead the way to actually bringing together people and closing the racial divide. Please, God. Yeah, that would be great. That would be from your mouth to God's ears. But I know the Lord the Lord will is good for us. So uh, 
I hope that can that can come about now when things seem pretty urgent. The, the church belongs where people are in pain. I mean, that's that's where the church is called to be. Yep, people who are taking it on the chin and want to keep on keep on doing his work. Well, thank you very much, Deacon Harold. We won't take any more of your time now, but uh, you can be sure that uh, we'll be uh, seeking out your uh, uh, publications and uh, visits around the country and around the world. Um, uh, we'll, we'll put the uh, links to certain things we know about uh, in our show notes. Is there one particular best way that you'd like to recommend people get in touch with you? Yeah, just deaconharrow.com, the website, you know, because it uh, has uh, access to all social media um, and have a, 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 a media section there where it has all videos and audios and interviews and writings, tons of stuff, plus YouTube and all that stuff, the uh, social media is all there. Plus opportunities for pilgrimages. Uh, I offer a life coaching service as mm-hmm. well. Um, so, so everything's there, deaconherald.com. Great, great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Paul and Bill, for, for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. All the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.